ahead and grab your Bibles and turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find our text today on page 816. So those pew Bibles are, would be right underneath the seat in front of you. We'd love for you to grab one of those. I told the first service, man, you know, I could just grab one of these stools that are up here and pull my shirt tail out and I could be one of the cool preachers, but they didn't seem to think that would work too well. So I think I'll just uh, keep standing and we'll move forward from that. So, but, um, you know, it's been, it was a sad week, wasn't it? You know, we, you read the news and young adult, in many ways, is really on a great trajectory, right? He's, he's already a commercial pilot. He's on his way from probably going from being the co-pilot to the pilot and et cetera. And he's flying a regional jet over uh, the Alps in France and walks the pilot out of the cockpit and intentionally flies it into the mountains and kills all 150 people on board. In some ways, I really haven't followed the story all that closely, but as the news has kind of unfolded, they, as they tried to explore what were the rationales behind it, here was a guy who seems like now what they've been able to discover is he was just in this place in his life where he said, you know, life isn't worth living anymore. You know, he... They found a doctor's note and supposedly been, it seems like he'd been struggling from depression and then that was even triggered worse because his girlfriend had just broken up with him and so he's at a place where there's enough pain going on and he's looking at the purpose of his life, the, what matters of his life, what his life can count for and he weighs that against the pain that he's having and he says, this isn't worth doing anymore. And so he climbs into the cockpit and really at the first opportunity he has, he grabs the controls and he flies it literally into the ground and he kills all 150 people on board. It's a sad thing, right? It's incredibly sad. You know, it'd almost be easier to swallow, if you will, if there'd been some mechanical failure. You know, if the, one of the wings had just fallen off, you know, or whatever. But, but it does highlight to us the central role that a sense of purpose or a sense of meaning, a sense of value, a sense of worth plays in our lives. I mean, our lives are going to have pain, right? I mean, it's just, I mean, some of you have been alive longer than I have, but I, I've been along long enough to know that it's not all uphill. It's not always just a rose garden, right? You know, sometimes there's a lot of pain in our lives. Some of it's self-inflicted. Some of it comes from other people. Some of it just comes from circumstances that's really nobody's fault, but there's pain in our lives, and, and we get into those moments, and in some way or another, even throughout all of our journey, we, we, we kind of ask the question, well, what is my life supposed to be all about anyways? What's the significance? What's the value of it? Why does it matter? I, don't, I haven't met anybody who's ever said to me, I don't want my life to count for anything. I've never met a single person like that. I'm sure there are those around, but I've never had anybody sit in my office and say, you know what, I want my life to count for nothing. When I'm gone, I don't want anybody to remember me because I never did it. I've, I've never, we all want somehow or another our lives to matter, to count, to add up to something, to have an impact, to have some significance to it. And really, when we get into those moments when life is really the hardest, sometimes those are the things that draw us forward. And what I want to remind you of today is that the act of redemption and our experience of God's redemption in our lives infuses us with a purpose. 
with a sense of value. With a, with a, it, it, it immediately shapes what our lives are supposed to count for. And, and I want to unpack that a little bit today. So, you know, we're getting into the season. We've really been focusing on this really since the beginning of February, right? You start Lent and you start looking towards the week that's going to happen this week, right? And this is the, the time of the year when all of Christendom is going to remember the triumphal entry, which is today, Palm Sunday, right? We have palms for you. You're stuck in a bed. There'll be people out here as you leave. They'll be glad to give those to you. I told the first service, no sword fights until you're in the parking lot, all right? That's the rule, you know? And, but, and we'll have lots of them, so take more than one. Take them with you, you know, kind of idea. But it's Palm Sunday, a day where they celebrated the coming, if you will, of the Messiah into Jerusalem. Later this week, we'll, many churches will hold Monday, Thursday services, recalling the events of the upper room on the last night of Jesus' life giving of the Lord's Supper for the first time, the washing of the feet, the teachings that went on, then the Garden of Gethsemane, and then the crucifixion, his death. On Easter, we'll celebrate, and we'll have all kinds of fancy instruments up here making different noises than we're used to hearing, you know, but we'll be celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And, but all of that, as it impacts our lives to our response to, to God's call to faith, gives you and I an incredible value, gives our lives a purpose, it makes our lives supposed to count for something, and the very meaning that we're searching for is rooted in how God has redeemed us in Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible talks about that in lots of different ways. I'm going to whittle it down to one, and we're going to proceed from there. But, but even in the account of the triumphal entry, in Luke's version of it, in chapter 19 of his gospel, as they're walking into the city, you know, and, and they're laying out the palms, laying out their clothes, they're celebrating, singing, Hosanna to God in the highest, whatever. It's clear, the Pharisees are looking at it and saying, you know what, this looks like Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. And they say, you know, you've got to tell people to stop doing this. And Jesus looks at them and says, you know what, if they stopped, the very stones would have to cry out because this is just right. That there is a place in the activity of God, there's a purpose, a rightness to the fact that we proclaim or we demonstrate Christ as the Messiah. And the scripture talks about that in lots of different ways. I mean, when you look through, you could look at our purpose, what we matter, why our lives count, what we're supposed to be about, God's purpose for all those kinds of things. You know, Paul used the terminology, we're ambassadors for Christ. So we're somehow and I'm supposed to be his representatives in the world. Other places it says, you know, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So we're supposed to go out and be fruit bearers. We're supposed to have an impact on the lives of other people. I want to focus in on how Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you are the salt of the earth. And he said, you are the light of the world. Look at your scriptures with me. Let me read these verses to you today. When you and I experience... Redemption in our lives as we respond to God's call and we become children of God, our lives instantaneously now have the purpose, the value, what they're supposed to count for is to be world changers. And Jesus puts it this way, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. Now you can turn the lights out, but you can't hide the city. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. 
Unless you're trying to hide the light from your wife who's lying next to you and thinks it bothers her and you're trying to read in bed, then you do it. Or like when you were a kid and you're using a flashlight underneath the blanket so your parents can't see you're staying up late. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What redemption means is that every single one of us who've experienced new life in Jesus Christ, we have the role of being the light of the world. Your life, every single day, the way you live it matters. It counts. It has value because God is using you as the light of the world. Now, i got to tell you, most of us say, that doesn't sound like me at all, <laughs> right? I mean, I, you know, there are people who are the high flyers, and they change things, and et cetera. I'm, I'm a wallflower. I feel much better in the back. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm timid or whatever. I want you to understand. There's two things I want to accomplish in this message this morning. Is one is, I want you to be convinced from Scripture, as best as I can do it, that God has indeed reshaped you through your relationship in Jesus Christ to be somebody who is a world changer, somebody who is the light of the world, that you actually can fulfill this God-given purpose that God has given you. Secondly, I want to talk to you about how we can actually do that. Not so much in our practice, but how do we keep ourselves in a position where the light is shining from us? And so we'll work through a couple of those. And I want to stay right here in chapter 5 of Matthew to start, and I'll move a couple of other places as the sermon moves on. But I want you to see a connection in the Beatitudes. At the beginning of verse 3 of chapter 5, just, just across the column from, from where we were, Jesus has already been talking to his disciples. And before he gets to the place where he says, you are the light of the world, that actually, I, because you are in me and I am the light of the world, you are now the light of the world. You're supposed to go out and be world changers, be impacted. That's what your life is about. That's why it counts. That's why it matters. That's what his purpose is. He said, he talks about the impact that our response to the gospel of Jesus Christ has. It talks about how we get there and what happens when it happens. He starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, the poor in spirit here, are, these aren't the depressed people. That's not, that's not what he's talking about. He, he's not talking about those who are impoverished fiscally in the world. But what he is talking about is, there is a place in our spiritual journey where we understand that when we come to God, we have absolutely nothing that we can offer to Him that He wants. Everything that we have that could have had any value to God has already been tarnished and destroyed by the impact of sin. So that when we try to step into a relationship with God, we are 100% totally spiritually impoverished. You might use the word conviction to go with that. But it's this wonderful promise that when we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy before God, we're actually in a position where the kingdom of heaven can become ours. Then he talks about blessed are those who mourn. He's not talking about grieving loved ones. I've been doing it. I love both of my parents in the last year and a half. Many of you know that. We've had just several families, even just in recent days, have lost loved ones. 
To mourn those that we care about is appropriate. It's the way that God's made us. It's right to grieve. But that's not what he's talking about here. What, he, what he's talking about here is a spiritual root in our mourning. It's where we, we come to a place, we understand that, that, that we are spiritually bankrupt before God and that we have nothing to offer. And we also come to understand that our sin really does offend God. It hurts God. It shatters our relationship with God. And we grieve. It, it creates a brokenness within us. A brokenness that drives us towards repentance. And those who are mourning, who realize that we've shattered this relationship with God, we will be comforted, the Scripture tells us. He says, blessed are the gentle. Some of your translations use the word meek. I think that's actually a better translation of the idea here that's in the Greek word. Blessed are the meek. And the, and the whole idea here isn't, isn't about weakness. It isn't about being passive. It isn't, it isn't about being timid and a wallflower kind. Of, that's not the imagery. The imagery here of something is meek is, is somebody who takes all of their passion, all their ambition, all their giftedness, all their drive, all their energy, and they literally just lay it down before God and let God shape it and direct it and use it. That's what it means to be meek. It's a place where we come, we, we recognize we have nothing to offer God, we're, we're, we're broken about the state of our relationship with God, and then we take everything that we have and we lay it out before God and say it's yours. And then the scripture says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be full. So in this state of just pouring everything out before God, we just, we just cling to God. We grab onto him. We're not going to let him go because we're hungering and thirsting for what he can only give us, which is a right relationship with God. I see the picture of, of Jacob, who's soon to become Israel, clinging to the angel in the middle of the night, and he just won't let him go. He's not trying to beat God. He realizes that he has no other option before God as Esau, his brother, is pounding down on him with 400 men, and he clings to God because God is his only hope, and he's not going to let him go until God blesses him. It's the same kind of spirit of grabbing out, reaching out to God, clinging, if you will, to the cross. So here, here is this movement of, of stepping into redemption as we are recognize our spiritual poverty and we're and, we're, and, and we mourn over it, and we pour ourselves out before God, and we cling to what God, and only what God can do for us. And we experience redemption. And look what begins to happen. Blessed are the merciful. What's happened inside begins to work itself outside. If you're going to be the light of the world, you think you're going to have to be merciful? Come on. You know as well as I do that everybody around us has this incredible ability to annoy us, don't they? I mean, there's just, I'll resist the temptation to take that in a couple of directions. But, you know, you know, why does the scripture say love covers a multitude of sins? Because, you know, there's a lot of things that people can do that can bug us, right? And he's, if you and I are going to be the light of the world, we're going to have to be a merciful group. You know, we're, we're going to have to be able to exercise a lot of grace because there's a lot of people in our families, outside of our families, people we work with, neighbors, etc., they, they, they have this incredible ability to get on our nerves. And sometimes they're just flat out stupid in what they do, right? I'm be, you know, you know, but it takes mercy to care for people, does it not? You know, it takes, it's hard sometimes for us to say, you know what, they, they, they got what they deserved. You know, why should I do anything about that? 
But to be the light of the world takes more. What God has done within us begins to shine itself out, and it actually equips us to be who it is that God has called us to be, which is to be the light of the world. Same with a pure in heart. That deep down inside, in a place where, we, where who we are really starts, we're good. We're righteous. Because of what God has done, and with that it begins to grow outward. And we become who we already are in Christ in this transformation that goes on. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is more than just those who are like mediators and can draw people together. But these are the people who actively in relationships and every kind of other situation try to make sure that conflict never starts in the first place. That's being the light of the world. Being the light of the world. Who are going to hang in there, even in the midst of persecution, when people are insulting you and saying all kinds of false things about you, they're going to stay in there and they're going to be merciful and pure and peacemakers. See, what God has done within us has actually equipped us to be who he's called us to be, which is the light of the world. Maybe a different way of looking at the same thing. Turn over to John chapter 15 with me. Just a couple books back in the New Testament. John chapter 15. Give me page number in just a second. Page 917. I just want to look at one single verse, verse 11. You think about our role as being the light of the world. It, it, and he talks about the city being set on the hill. So it's, it, it should, should be a life, it should be a style of life that people want to look up to, what people want to have. It should be attractive to other people. It should be a life, maybe for lack of a better way of saying it, it's a life that's marked by joy, it's marked by peace, it's marked by contentment, by wholeness. You know, it's, it's, it's a life that, wow, you know, those folks, you know, that person is, is, is really doing life well. Look what he says in verse 11. I have spoken these things to you. So this is Jesus on the last light of his life. That Thursday night, he's in the upper room. He's telling, teaching the disciples all kinds of stuff about abiding in him and he and them. Prayer and ask whatever you will and it'll be given to you in my name. He says, I'm telling you all this stuff up front so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be half full. A third full? Three-quarters full. So, so your joy may be complete. You know, it's, it's like Jesus said, I want to pour my joy into you so that your joy is forced up and out. You know, you ever been to a wedding or some kind of a party where they got those chocolate fountains going on? You know, where, you know, it's just, they got the liquid chocolate, it's just dribbling down and skip the cookies, you just... You know, you can't use the same finger more than once. You've got to switch hands or, you know, that kind of idea. I love food illustrations if you're around. He wants our joy to be just bubbling out the top and coming down the sides where it's just dripping all over everybody. That, that you know, if, you, if, you, if you're around believers, believers have the joy of Christ in them. It's forcing the joy up and out, and it's just going everywhere. And as the joy is going everywhere, you can be the light of the world. And that's exactly what God is doing and wants to do in our lives because our lives were meant to matter because we have actually been shaped in redemption to be the light of the world. <laughs> I didn't tell the story in the first service, but you know, we're in the middle of remodeling a bathroom. 
And so one of the steps, I, I take the toilet out that was in there. And so I turned the water off, flushed it, all that kind of stuff. You know, use the, use the uh, plunger to get the water out of the bowl or whatever. And I got it off, and I'm trying to get the wax ring off the bottom. And I'm tipping the, tipping the toilet, and there's just a little bit of water left in the tank, right? And sure enough, it comes out. And once it hits the floor, it just goes everywhere. I'm thinking, I'm glad I'm pulling this floor out, right? You know, but it's going everywhere. You know, and, and, and that's, that, that's a terrible picture, but a vivid picture of the way God wants our joy just to run everywhere. <laughs> now, there's an illustration you will not forget. <laughs> I'll hear about that on Tuesday from my wife, I'm telling you. Now, now listen. I understand, because I live in the same place that you do, that it's night, we walk out the door today, so I, I understand I'm supposed to be the light of the world. My life counts. The, what I do tomorrow, what I do tomorrow afternoon, what I do tomorrow night, what I do Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon, I know all that stuff counts. It matters. It has a difference. It makes an eternal difference. I understand all that stuff. At the same time, we live in the real world. So how in the world do you do that? How, how do you maintain that over the long haul? Because we, we, you know, we, we get distracted. There's lots of stuff going on, and, and there, there's no system that's foolproof, but now that I've hopefully given you a biblical foundation to understand that you really are, in Christ, made to be the light of the world. This isn't just for part of the church, it's not just for the guys who wear the microphones, but it's for all of us to be the light of the world, that God wants our lives to change the world. How in the world do you and I actually do that? I'm going to have to move very quickly, but I'm going to work just very quickly through Colossians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, keep turning with me a little further back, and you get to page 1002, Colossians chapter 3. And I, I want to lay out just a few truths for us today about the practices, the convictions, the mindset, whatever term you want to use, that actually keep us in a position where we understand that we are the light of the world, that our lives always count. They always have a divine purpose. Now, Paul has been writing to this church in Colossae, and, and he's been sharing with them the foundations of what God has done in Christ. He's been talking about the impact of redemption, etc. And when he gets to chapter three, 3, he kind of shifts from the, the theology side of things to the implications, to what differences this is making in our everyday lives. What are we supposed to do with what we now know and what we now experience or have in Christ? And this is I just want to point out four things to you. I'm going to read the, all the way down through verse 17 in different pieces. I'll make quick comments, and then we'll, we'll, we'll call it a day. Right? So if you've been raised with the Messiah, verse 1, seek what is above, where the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on what is above, not on what is on the earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. And when the Messiah, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Now, there's all kinds of pieces of this that are related to redemption. The fact that we're hidden in Christ, so that when God looks at us, he sees Christ. And, but the overall appeal is here is that because of what has happened to us in Jesus Christ, the very first priority, the thing that always needs to mark our lives is to pursue a relationship with Christ. He said, you know what? Christ is, is up there now. He's in, he's in heaven. So don't be 
focused on the stuff around here, but set your minds on the things that are above, because that's where Christ is. And so we need to be earnestly and sincerely and actively pursuing our relationship with Christ. The chief business, the number one responsibility that you and I have as a Christian is to maintain and to strengthen and deepen our relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and let me remind you, if this has gotten off of your radar, Christianity is not a religion. Not a religion. Christianity is a relationship. Now, Christianity, like all the other religions, has a lot of, like, truths, if you will, but these truths that are laid out are actually a description of a person. And this, and it's into a relationship with that person, Jesus Christ, that springs the life that comes. This isn't about mastering when you kneel or stand up or how loud you're supposed to sing or being able to sing the songs without having to look at the, at the screen. It's not about those kinds of things. It's not knowing about which book comes first, Colossians or Galatians. Those things can all be helpful, but primarily Christianity is a relationship. And the way that you and I sustain ourselves as the light of the world is to always have it be our number one objective is to seek a relationship with God. That the dominant priority, the priority that shapes everything else is that you and I live in a relationship with God. So keep that first. Here's the second helpful hint for us on how to fulfill our role as the light of the world. Let's pick up with verse 5. Therefore, put to death whatever in you is worldly. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desire, greed, which is adultery. Because of these, God's wrath comes on the disobedient. And you once walked in these things. You lived like this. You were that, if you will. You once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now, it's a big but, but now you must also put away all the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices. And you've put on the new man who is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of his creator. Let me give you just, just a quick thought. Earlier I read some scripture from Romans chapter 6. And Paul talks about the fact that our old self has been crucified with Christ. So all the stuff that flows here, like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, things like anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language, those things, all that stuff flows out of that old life that's been crucified. The problem is that that old self somehow seems to always be able to resurrect itself within us, doesn't it? Just like Christ was resurrected, there's somehow or another that, that old self just, it doesn't seem to just go away and stay away. And what Paul is saying here is that you've, you've, you're in a position where you can set your minds on the things above because you're in relationship with Christ, pursue that, the number one thing, and make sure that the old self never comes back. Just keep, keep killing it. Keep putting it aside. You know, last year I, I had this area of, of my yard. I've been fighting a battle with it for like 10 years, trying to get real grass to grow instead of crabgrass. Anybody ever had that problem? Anyway, I, I just, this once, I, no matter what, I plant new seed, till it up, do the water and fertilizer, whatever, crabgrass. So I said, you know what? This year I ain't going to lose. And this is how, that was last year. Said, I'm not going to lose. So you know what my solution was? Some of you were to my house. I covered the whole hill with black plastic for the whole summer. 
crabgrass did not grow. And then when I got to the fall, I spread out some weed block, put down a little topsoil, planted some grass, seed, up come the grass, and I'm hoping when the snow banks are gone, it's still there. You know, but there's sometimes where we, we need to just stop with the weed, you know, the weed block and the halts and all that kind of stuff, and we just need to put out some black plastic, keep the old self down, just kill it. Put to death the earthly within us. Third truth. Look at verse 11. I'm going to read a couple verses to go with it, but the primary focus is out of verse 11. Here, he's talking about the church, the community of believers. There is no Greek and Jew. There's no circumcision and uncircumcision. There's no barbarian or Scythian or slave or free. And you could add in other places in the scriptures, it's not male nor female, it's not married or single, not rich or poor, it's not, none of that kind of stuff. There's no, no, but Christ is all and he's in all. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity. Now, now hear me real quickly. Part of staying in a position where our lives matter for what God wants them to matter for, that we really are the light of the world, is to make sure that you and I identify ourselves correctly. We're not male or female. We're not rich or poor. We're not successful or failure. We're not black or white. We're not Asian or non-Asian. We're not heterosexual or homosexual. We're, you know, any of those kinds of things. We are either Christ or we're not. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. And part of what we need to do as the children of God is to make sure that the way we identify ourselves is rooted in our identity in Christ. When you go out to be the light of the world, it's not because you're the smartest or the most articulate or the cleverest or you've done the most good things or you've given the most money. It's none of that stuff. The reason you go out to be the light of the world is because you are a child of the king. You are a chosen one, holy and loved. And you, we need to start identifying, seeing ourselves, understanding who we are in Christ, not based upon any of the other stuff we want to use to somehow create sense of identity. Christ is all, and he's in all. Got one last truth. And this really connects deeply to the thought of joy that we talked about just a minute, moment ago. Because i got to tell you, I've met a few believers along the way. I really, they were just cranky, unhappy people. Maybe you've never known any, any believers like that, but some people, they're just profoundly unhappy and, and cranky and crabby. And, and I'm not trying to be over... But you're thinking, I, I hope people don't know they're a Christian. Because that's terrible advertising. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's like... You know, anyway, so different story. Look at this thing. Verse 15. And let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were called in one body, control your hearts. Just as last phrase, be thankful. Be thankful. For you and I to be people who kind of stay rooted in this 
world changer role that God's given us as the light of the world is that we need to become the world's number one authority on the ways that God's been good to us. Not, not us, but to you. you. You need to become the world's number one authority on how God has been good to you. We, we have this great ability to be able to look at all the things we'd like to be different in our lives. And we need to actually just be thankful for the good that God has done for us. To be thankful. I, I told the first story, I've my ministry career, I've, I've done funeral services for probably a half a dozen people who were under the age of 18. And I can wake up this morning and be thankful that I can pick up the phone and if they'll answer it, I can talk to my 24-year-old and my 26-year-old son. That's something to be thankful for. Neither one of my kids, nor my wife, nor myself has any terminal kind of illness. One of our elders told us today of a connection that they have. Five-year-old boy diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor. It's inoperable. Unless God does a miracle, he's not going to live. I, I got something to be thankful for. You, you, you think about the difficult... I mean, some of these guys that I teach in, in Rwanda who've been through the genocide, it, it's absolutely incredible. This, this, this young man, Nicodine, you know, he's 10 years of age. He's out in the middle of Lake Kivu when the genocide breaks loose. He and a few friends, they row across the lake. Just 10 years old. They live four months in the DRC by themselves. When they come back, his entire family's gone. I got to stay with my folks until they were 81. It's a lot to be thankful for. And I got to tell you, I, I think it's hard to be the light of the world if we aren't thankful to people. Be thankful for the good that God's done for you. Become the number one world authority and been able to articulate the way that God has shared his grace and his goodness with you. You know, I told the first story, I just concluded with this. I, you know, we think about this purpose, I think, and, 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 and cast against the backdrop of the tragedy of that young man flying a plane into the Alps, killing 150 people just because he couldn't find a reason to keep living. When, when, when you cast it off against that. Even, here, I, I think there's so many of us as believers who have, who have been, we really are shaped, remade, redeemed, chosen, brought into God's family. We, we, we have been made to be world changers and we're settling for, for so little. C.S. Lewis kind of told the story this way. He said, you know, he said so many Christians, they're, they're just so ambiguous about their faith. He said, you know, they, they have two options before them that with, their, with their vacation time is the terminology he used, their holiday. They can either just go out back in the yard and make mud pies or they can go down to the coast and enjoy the incredibleness of the beach and the ocean. And most of them are simply content just to go out in the backyard and make mud pies. In the same ways, our lives were really designed to be world changers. But some of us are content just to play with the mud pies. Let's pray together. God, thanks for being the light of the world. Thanks for making us lights of the world. Thanks for giving our lives incredible meaning, value, purpose. Father, let our light shine in the darkness.
and let the darkness not overcome it. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite our